Hey, everybody who is as excited as I am to be back with some brand new episodes, some makers coming your way, female, non-binary makers, all kinds from all over the world. My name is Katie Freeman, and I am your host every week. I bring you episodes on Wednesdays and Fridays, interviews with makers, female makers, and non-binary makers of all kinds of making and crafting and all kinds of things from all over the world. Today's guest is Irene Way. I'm super excited to bring you this conversation. It's an important conversation. It was super intriguing and interesting. I went into it knowing Irene through woodworking, found out she is also a traditional paper maker as well. And so really dove down deep into that just because it was something that I found really interesting and I thought you guys would as well um, and her experience as a uh, Taiwanese American citizen. So excited for that. So excited to be back under the new name of the podcast, Crafting Revolution. And I mean, come on, Ashley Minnie, who's been a guest on the podcast, blew it out of the water with this music that she put together. She wrote the music, she wrote the lyrics, she did it all. Amazing maker, amazing musician. And so thank you so very much, Ashley, for putting this all together uh, so that we can use it going forward. All right, but before we hop in into the podcast interview episode with Irene, I want to give a big shout out and thanks to the patrons over on Patreon. All right, so thank you so much, Katie Thompson of uh, Women of Woodworking, Kevin Lefty's Woodshop, Christy Twisted Twine, Jeremy, Jeremy Spies, Sammy, Go Sammy Lee, Sven, Dwarf Size Workshop, Rachel, Moody Makes, Bonnie, Tool Mom, Bonnie, ToolMomStore.com, Laura, Oakley Soap Company, Mary Lou Made by Mary Lou, Brandy, Studio Obey, Lee, The Rainbow Carver, Ellen, Little Bear Furniture, and Ethan, Ethan Carter Designs. Thank you all so very much for your ongoing and continued support helping me to produce two episodes a week every week. And with no further ado, here is Irene Way. Right. <laughs> no worries. Uh, my name is, okay. Um, my name is Irene Way. I am a furniture designer. I received my education at the Rhode Island School of Design. Um, when I'm not making furniture, I am working on preserving a Taiwanese traditional craft um, of making pith paper flowers. Uh, there's only one uh, uh, paper maker who makes the material for this craft left in Taiwan. And uh, there's only a few people who make the flowers. So um, something that I've been doing is uh, trying to educate artistic communities about this craft to hopefully uh, continue the knowledge of it yeah that's that's really that's super interesting so it's almost like it's like an endangered species of craft essentially yeah. <laughs> it's interesting so the Paper is made from this plant called Tetrapanix papyrifer in Chinese is called, or Mandarin Chinese is called Tongcao. And um, 
actually the cultivation of this plant is also kind of waning as well because there isn't a demand for the uh, crafts made from this plant. Um, so it's been kind of sad to see, see it uh, becoming less valued in, uh, in our, the Taiwanese community. But uh, recently there's been a push to revive the crafts associated with it and the cultivation of the plant. Yeah. Okay. Are you like interested in getting into the, you said there's only like one person who makes mm -hmm. the paper. So are you looking to also learn how to like make the paper or yourself? Yeah. Um, so I also have a background in traditional paper making and I have previously been a board member of the hand paper making magazine and have worked for several other traditional paper making institutions. Um, and that's how I first came to know this material. And I uh, am currently here in Taiwan on a Fulbright Research Fellowship to do more research on the plant and how it's used to make this pith paper for pith flower making. And I'm trying to learn the how to make the paper and the flowers right now because there's a very severe lack of tools to make the flowers and the paper. Um, something, else, something I'm also trying to do is trying to remake a lot of these tools so that way my uh, teachers can uh, continue to share, they can like spread more mm -hmm. knowledge about it because they have the tools to be able to do that, right? The tools are pretty, um, they, they can get damaged easily. Mm -hmm. So they don't really, at least on the paper making side of things, um, the tools for paper making are pretty easily, can be easily damaged. So, uh, so the people who, the one remaining pith paper maker actually teach people how to make it anymore um, oh okay is there I mean besides the flowers is there anything else that's made from that paper yeah um actually people use uh the pith of the tongtao plant to for medicine actually mm. it's very interesting um you can boil it uh, and eat and, and there's like a recipe for carp soup with tong tao and it's used as a way to promote lactation in pregnant people. So <laughs> I thought it was very interesting. And it's also been known to help with diuresis and uh, helping with fevers as well. It's very interesting. Wow. I really wish I would have known about that when I had little babies. Oh, that would have been helpful. <laughs> yes. um, oh, also, the pith of this plant is a white, spongy material. And historically, it's actually been used kind of like a styrofoam. Um, it has not ever been used as an alternative to styrofoam because it has historically always been used this way. So I've read texts in Chinese where they've said that they've used it as a life vest material or like a like a fit fishing fly material or as insulation for homes uh, 
in, wow. like, in like more ancient times. Yeah. Yeah. But that's, that's super interesting. Yeah. Uh, so <clears throat> I kind of dove right in because I got interested about the paper thing. But <laughs> I, I do want to maybe hit pause for a second and mm-hmm. ask a broader question of, you know, what's, what's your story from, you know, where did, where were you born? Where'd you grow up to like how you got to what you're doing now? Um, okay. I was born in Missouri as a child to uh, Taiwanese immigrants and we eventually moved to Michigan. Um, I grew up in a single parent household and my mom actually encouraged my affinity for the arts because she herself was an artist. She actually got her degree in painting at the Wenhua Daxue. It's like a a university in Taipei um, when she was an undergrad. And she actually was supposed to go to RISD for graduate school, but because she couldn't afford it, she wasn't able to go back um, in the early 80s or something like that. Um, it's very interesting though, because even though we're both interested in the arts, she's very much a 2D person and I'm very much a 3D person. So <laughs> that's been kind of something we joke about at home. Um, but when I was able to go, to go to the Rhode Island School of Design, it was a really big deal for both of us because uh, it was like very emotional because for her, she had always dreamt of going and I was like finally able to go for the both of us basically. Um, And when I was there, I actually thought I was gonna go into sculpture because I I feel like I'm a very tactile person. I really like making things with my hands. Um, But I guess I had not really ever considered furniture before. I, I guess subconsciously, I just didn't realize I could do that. I didn't like, I didn't think I could do it. But then uh, during one of the studio tours, I saw that one of the professors there was an East Asian woman, um, Yuri Kobayashi. And I was like, wow, she's so cool. And she's so smart and extremely good at woodworking. And I guess just that visual of her being there and doing, excelling at something that I guess society had been telling me, and I had been telling myself because of that, that I couldn't do woodworking. Um, It was just kind of like, oh, that's silly. Why did I ever think that? Like, look at this one, she's doing so great. And so I immediately changed my major over to furniture design. And I, I really think it was the best decision for myself. Yeah. Um, so you know, since then. Oh, she, yeah. She's had an influence yeah. on others. Um, you're not the first to bring up her name. So I think, um, <laughs> I think, and I think that's excellent, right? It's the the representation allows others to see themselves and think, oh, that's something I can do. Yeah. Um, yeah, that she is, she's like been a big influence in my uh, development as a furniture, uh, yeah, development as a furniture designer. 
Um, but after college, I, I immediately went into, so I had been keeping up my practice in traditional paper making on the and I had been working for paper making institutions on the side, in addition to my studies in furniture design. Um, and so immediately after college, I went uh, to Taiwan on the RISD Maharam STEAM Fellowship, which is a program that provides funding for some research. And that's when I first came to Taiwan to study Tong uh, Cao and how it's used for pith paper making and traditional paper flower making. Um, and so while I was there, I documented all, a lot of people. Actually, I kind of turned into this much bigger project than I thought it was going to be. I actually thought I was just going to learn how to make the paper and learn how to make the flowers, and that was going to be it. But then I ended up talking to wood scientists, conservators, um, or conservationists, uh, um, uh, herbalists and I also talked to farmers and uh, botanists and it was really interesting to see how to learn a lot more about my Taiwanese heritage through this plant and the crafts associated with it um, and it also because I I've been learning how to make these flowers. I've also been learning a lot about the flora and fauna of Taiwan. And I think that's been really nice because that was my, I'm going to Taiwan um, as an adult or the last time I've been to, Ta I went to Taiwan, I was a really, I was really young. So I don't remember much of it, of my time there. Um, but it's been amazing to, not only learn about this rich traditional craft that's so meaningful to my culture, but it's also been a way for me to learn more about other things like the vegetation that exists <laughs> in Taiwan. And because um, I hadn't really seen it before in person mm -hmm. um, until two years ago. Um, so I was in Taiwan for a few months. And then after that, I came back to Ann Arbor, Michigan, and I worked as a woodworking instructor at a makerspace there, where I also freelanced and did uh, custom furniture for in the area. And then I did that for a year and a half, and now I'm back in Taiwan, continuing continuing my research on this traditional craft that um, on through the Fulbright Research Program. Yeah. So that's, that's where I'm at right now. <laughs> yeah, that's no, that's awesome. Um, so I think I want to follow up on. So were you doing, like, had you gotten into paper making before you went into college? Yeah. Okay. I first learned traditional paper making through Andrea Peterson, um, who runs Hook Pottery Paper. I think it, I think that's the name of her studio. And that was at Oxbow in Michigan, uh, the okay. Oxbow Artist in Residency Program in Michigan. Okay. 
Was that, I mean, what sparked your interest in paper making? It actually was very much by accident. Um, I saw an ad through the artists and residency program that they were providing free scholarships to um, high school students and they could choose any course that they liked. They, they liked. And um, I was like, oh, paper making sounds interesting. And so I signed up for that class and then realized that I really liked it. It's really nice working with the material. And I, a lot of people ask me why I continue to do it because it's so, it seems like it's very different from furniture, but I think they're both very tactile fields and I really enjoy working with my hands. So, and also the paper making kind of um, can, my paper making work can go into my furniture a lot of the times. Mm -hmm. um, and I've found ways to do that. So yeah, it doesn't seem too disconnected to me. Well, they're both, and they're both essentially um, plant-based as well, right? I mean, a lot of, mm -hmm. you're working with natural materials for both fields. Mm -hmm. Yeah. How have you integrated your paper making into the, into the furniture making? Mm. Yeah, so um, I've incorporated it aesthetically as just like, um, I've made this coffee table that had and where I encased several layers of paper that I had made and it I don't really know how to describe it, but it's triangular and then mm -hmm. and there are many layers of paper. So it looks like you're looking into this many paper layered. That's not a good description. There's a, it just I've used it aesthetically within my work and mm -hmm. then also functionally. There's um I actually spent some time studying the traditional art of paper thread making um, and specifically this, the Japanese version of paper thread making mm -hmm. called Shifu. And back in the day, uh, Japanese farmers when they didn't have easy access to cotton during the winters, they would actually take old accounting books and then make paper thread. And apparently the paper thread garments were warmer than the cotton garments and it was really durable. Um, and there are some at, at the RISD museum, they actually have a Shifu 10, which is like a type of garment um, that is in really great condition. It's, it was worn by a farmer, I think like several hundred years ago. Oh, wow. And farmers like, are often moving a lot and mm -hmm. and so it was and it was still in really good condition so that just kind of showed to me that this is a really great resourceful way to, to use paper and it's really a really practical way to use paper and so I learned how to make this paper thread and I used it for upholstery on a bench that I made. Okay. Yeah. Do you feel like I mean it sounds like you have a, a huge love for paper making. Do you have, I mean, do you feel like it's like equal? 
between the paper making and the furniture? Or do you think like you'll continue down the path of paper making probably more so than furniture? Mm, I think it's equal, um, but there's more funding uh, in my practice as a furniture maker. And so, I, I mean, sorry, by funding, I mean, uh, I can make more money mm -hmm. uh, as a furniture maker than as a paper maker. And so I've been using my career as a furniture maker to support my, my side career as a traditional paper maker. Mm -hmm. um, but if I could, and I had all the money in the world, I would try to even it out a little more. Hey makers. So today's podcast episode is sponsored in part by Alicia Van Osdahl, who is the owner of Basil Blue Design Company. Alicia is a maker of all things really. Her focus is on beautiful craftsmanship through woodworking, repurposing, refinishing art and sculpture. Her background includes 30 years of graphic design, logos and branding. If you have an idea or concept, that and need a creative solution or graphic design, you can email Alicia directly at Alicia, and that is A-L-I-C-I-A at basilblue.com. Or you can visit her website at www.basilblue.com. And fun fact, uh, Alicia actually designed the logo for Crafting Revolution. So that is an example of the impeccable work you can expect if that is something you are in the market for. So be sure to look up Alicia again at her website, basilblue.com. All right, let's get back into the action. Mm -hmm. Now, have you, um, being in Taiwan, has there been any uh, research into uh, like traditional Taiwanese furniture making? Uh, as, as me, uh, me personally, yeah, have I done any research in it. Um, I haven't done as much research into Taiwanese furniture making, and I also think that because a lot of Taiwanese culture has evolved from Chinese culture, um, I think that's a lot of the furniture that you find here can also be found in China because mm. of. Uh, because of like the migration of Chinese people to Taiwan at different stages in different time periods. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, do you see influence of um, East Asian work in what you learned in school? Mm -hmm. um, that's something that I've actually been thinking about recently. Um, in school, we're taught about American design and what that usually looks like are like Ray and Charles Eames, Bertoia, uh, Goddard and Townsend, or um, the Shakers, mm -hmm. which they're all great, but I think that the American narrative is has expanded much beyond that by now. And I think different cultures use furniture very differently. And so I think 
that we could have more representation of other types of furniture used in different cultures in mm -hmm. our American education because I think that I relate less to the artists and designers that are taught in school, mm -hmm. um, especially because um, in a lot of East Asian cultures, you spend a lot of time lower to the floor, like you kneel at a table mm -hmm. or, <laughs> so I think different, different cultures use furniture differently. And because there are so many different types of people who live in America, not just white Americans, um, I think that there could be more representation of different artists and designers in school mm -hmm. that show how furniture is used differently across cultures in a more respectful way. Um, for example, like in, in a lot of Asian cultures, a lot of the furniture is lower to the ground because a lot more time is spent lower to the ground. Um, like you can, you kneel at the table or like even the utensils are different. Like at, at least in Taiwanese culture, we use chopsticks more than we use um, forks and spoons and knives. Right. I feel like a lot of like in Western European culture, there's like a specific spoon, knife and fork <laughs> for all sorts of different types right. of food. Right. <laughs> um, and so, like just, I think that, I think that for me, it's been interesting. I felt like even just through, because we live with this furniture and we grow up with it. And that's how, that's uh, when, when, I guess what I'm trying to say is when you're only taught about one type of culture's uh, like design yeah it definitely makes you it, it kind of excludes other people who consider themselves American but come from a different cultural background or a different ethnic background um, yeah um, but in the ways that I have seen East Asian designs used at school it <laughs> has often been used in a, I'm trying to find a nicer word, but in a- Hey, I'm gonna, I'm gonna tell you, you don't have to be nice on this podcast. You can say, okay. you, can say you can say how you feel about it. Okay, well, <laughs> I feel like it's been used in, a, in often very tactless ways um, because I think a lot of white Americans really appreciate um, the aesthetic of East Asian designs, but oftentimes I see people using like Chinese, Japanese design motifs in their work, but they have no idea what they these like symbols or designs mm -hmm. resemble in their respective cultures. And I've seen some things where it's just very, uh, it, it exploits the culture. Um, some people take less issue with this than I do, uh, but I do think that, I think it's just interesting because I think that when I've used, when I've referenced East Asian design, specifically Taiwanese and my Taiwanese and Chinese, uh, like 
Chinese heritage, excuse me, uh, when I've used, when I've ref referenced Chinese and Taiwanese designs, um, I feel like it's just kind of like, whatever, yeah, of course the Asian girl is gonna do that. But then when my white colleagues or classmates use or reference mm -hmm. designs that they don't even know anything about, they're kind of held in a much higher light than me. Um, I was actually exhibiting at the Philadelphia Furniture Show a couple of years ago. And I was there uh, because I was one of the emerging artist recipients. And some guy came up to me and he actually said, you and your work don't really fit in here. Like, why are you here? <laughs> and it was just kind of like, hmm, like, you are using East Asian designs in your own work. And <laughs> so how is it that my work doesn't belong here? I mean, to be fair, my work was a lot more colorful than a lot of the work mm -hmm. that was there, but, and it definitely stuck out quite a bit more, but I mean. <laughs> but I, just, I think, I, I think that should be celebrated, not, not dismissed or put down. Um, yeah, I mean, to, I want to ask, like, so in your own home growing up, the furniture that you were surrounded with, did it reflect your um, East Asian heritage? Or was it, you know, European? I mean, because that's, to your point, that's what's taught in our schools is basically European furniture, European-based furniture, which if you do much diving, you can find was stolen from very different aspects were stolen from many different cultures and then claimed as mm -hmm. European. Um, <clears throat> but I just curious, like in your own space, like were you able to see reflected your, your own East Asian heritage? Mm. Actually not really. Because um, when I was younger, we actually, I grew up in a low income household and we actually lived amongst a lot of university students. And so <laughs> we would just pick up furniture that they would throw away and then mm -hmm. use that in our household. Um, <laughs> and so our house, like our house never looked very cohesive furniture wise. Um, <laughs> but it was all very practical, so whatever. Mm -hmm. um, but I think it's just interesting being uh, a kid of di diaspora um, because I, as I told you, I, I, had, I, I went to Taiwan for the first time as like a cognizant adult about two years ago. And it was my first time completely being immersed in this culture and before that, I felt so disconnected because the objects around me didn't resemble my culture or my, my ethnic background, at least. And um, I was seen as other because of the way I looked. And I also couldn't speak the language very well, like Chinese or Taiwanese. Um, 
sorry. No. <laughs> distracted by your cat. Yeah, sorry. Uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, and so it was really special to be in Taiwan for me, mostly because I got to see the real deal, not <laughs> what white people have interpreted uh, as, as Asian design. Mm -hmm. um, and that was really special to me. And I got to experience the culture for the first time, not just through my mom. Um, yeah. Yeah. I can, I can imagine that would be a uh, emotional experience and of a feeling of belonging. Um, do you feel ever, do you feel ever out of place in Taiwan because you grew up in the US? Does that ever uh, <laughs> feel, make you feel out of place there? Yeah, I mean, I think about it all the time. Um, it's interesting because in the US, I have always felt like a foreigner there, but I was mm -hmm. born there and I belong there more than I belong here in Taiwan um, because I didn't grow up here and I didn't grow up immersed in this culture. Uh, I feel like there's a lot of catching up I'd like to be able to do so I could learn more about Taiwanese culture. It's also interesting because in Taiwan, I'll, I don't think I'll ever be, uh, I'll never be considered an actual Taiwanese person. I'll always be considered um, someone of Taiwanese descent, but lives in America. Mm -hmm. I've heard. And so that's a little bit sad for me. Yeah. And I've heard from others, you know, um, maybe with a similar story of this feeling of maybe to put in your words, like being from two different worlds almost and feeling like never quite American enough and never quite uh, Taiwanese enough. And this, yeah. <laughs> the dichotomy of being able to live in both worlds. Um, yeah. Yeah. When I was growing up, even among like, the Taiwanese community that existed where I lived, uh, I was considered too American to hang out with them. And then for, at least in school, which was a, the school that I went to was predominantly white. Um, they were like, oh, you're, you're not white, so you can't hang out with us either. <laughs> um, so it definitely feels like a weird in-between like, and feels like I don't, really belong anywhere but I think more recently within the last couple of years um, I, I feel like I've developed a community of people who are similar to me where we've been we're we're like third culture kids where we are kind of stuck in this in between and 
it's been really nice to have this community of people who are just as confused as I am or struggling just as much or also celebrating the fact that we exist in this interesting in-between mm-hmm. space. Um, but I also feel like object making is very important to me because of this, especially through making uh, Taiwanese pith paper flowers or incorporating elements of Chinese and Taiwanese design into my furniture work. Um, because I think object making is a tangible way for me to reconnect to mm-hmm. my cultural heritage. And I would just, I would think to just connect with yourself. Like, I feel like, yeah. I mean, even just in the fact of like your integrating of your paper making into your furniture making, you're resembling the in-between. Like you're making a physical form of that feeling of in-between. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so do you get a chance to to do both when you're in Taiwan? Like, do you have access to like space to make, uh, mm-hmm. or is there only access to the paper making when you're in Taiwan? Um. So, right now, I only have access to making pith flowers, mostly because Taiwan is going under a mm-hmm. The lockdown. lockdown yeah or soft lockdown yeah because of covid um, but before the lockdown which was about two weeks ago <laughs> i found this maker space that i could uh, buy a membership for and so i could make furniture and i was thinking about finding ways to incorporate my pith flower making into my furniture make, uh, furniture making mm-hmm. um Hey makers, today's episode is sponsored in part by toolmomstore.com. At toolmomstore.com, you can find any and all tool-based merchandise for all genders, all sizes. They've got mugs, they've got shirts, all kinds of cool stuff. I have uh, one of the shirts myself that has the uh, hashtag woodworker on it. And I also have a couple of the mugs that define what and who is a tool chick. So super excited with the merchandise that I have. I know that you will be satisfied as well. Um, And also great discount for those of you who listen to the podcast at checkout. If you enter the code MAKERMOM, you will get a 20% discount off any of the merchandise that you buy. So that's just toolmomstore.com. All right, let's head back into the action. But right now I can't do that anymore because I'm not supposed to be going out except for going to the grocery store or something mm-hmm. like that. Do you still work on design though, as in uh, creating new work, um, at least sketch-wise? Yeah, I've been designing some furniture that I want to make on Rhino. We'll see when I actually get to make it. <laughs> but I was going to make these tables and then have these pockets in the middle of the table to put my pith flowers in and then cover them with glass. So that way you could see them as a centerpiece 
that's built into the table. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, right now I'm not able to make it. And so hopefully when I'm in, when, hopefully when this blows over or when I'm back in the U.S., and I find a space to make it, I can actually make it. <laughs> yeah. Can you make the pith flowers in the U.S.? Like, do you have access to the materials and everything in the U.S.? Yeah, so I I bought a lot of the materials from my teacher and brought them back to the U.S. last time, and I'm probably going to do that again. And I've also been working with my teacher to recreate a lot of the tools so I have been making, uh, remodeling them on CAD. And uh, I'm hoping to do some casts mm. of uh, 3, 3D print them and then cast yeah. them and then uh, maybe do some wax casting so I can get them brass casted. <laughs> what's the, casting. yeah, what's the, uh, I mean, you mentioned that the, the tools like wear easily or break easily. So what are they like made from the tools that you use to make the flowers? Okay, so to make the pith paper, you need this gigantic knife. Um, it's about one and a half feet long. Oh, wow. And the blade is about eight inches wide. Uh, but when it wears down, it, like it kind of, changes in thick, uh, thickness. Mm -hmm. Is that the right? Yeah, thickness. Um, I've seen some that were originally like six to eight inches wide that are now four inches wide. Okay. <laughs> um, but there aren't, because this tool is actually, even though it's a knife and people think, oh, I can remake that, there actually are some specific angles and weights that you have to get with this knife that makes it much more specialized than a regular knife. And there aren't people in Taiwan that make it anymore. Um, supposedly there are some people who still make a variation of this knife in China. And supposedly there are some paper makers left in China, but I am unable to go there right now. Uh, <laughs> uh, not only because of COVID, but because of political tensions yeah. between the US and China. Right. Uh, but originally that was supposed to be part of my Fulbright research plan was to spend 60 days in mainland China to go look for these craftspeople. Okay. Um, and then for the flower making, there are some specific tools that are used for petal making and leaf making, but there aren't people who make those tools anymore. Uh, and because this material. So pith paper is actually very different from regular paper. And technically, it's not actually a paper. It's a material that functions like paper. But when you look under the microscope, look at paper, actual paper under a microscope versus pith paper under a microscope, um, pith paper has like a, a parenchyma cell structure which is like a honeycomb mm -hmm. shape. Yep. Um, and paper, regular paper is that macerated plant fiber mm -hmm. that is felted together and pressed. So it looks like a lot of interwoven fibers. Yeah, yeah it's, so. it's much more like um, 
but uh, I, fiber is the is the word but um it start it's like a pulp right i mean regular yeah. like standard paper making starts with with a pulp does the yeah. with the pith do you create a pulp with that as well or is it since it's honeycomb structure a completely different process it's a completely different process so uh, the way you make this paper is first you have to get a plant, tong tao, and inside the plant there is a spongy inner white pith, and you have to extract that pith. Once you extract the pith, um, it's like this white rod, white spongy pith rod, and you cut them into sections, into manageable lengths, and then you pair it spirally. So kind of like how wood veneer is made. Mm. And so it's a completely different process and therefore it also acts very differently to paper. People still paint on it, but the paper, pith paper reacts differently when mm. it, when water touches it. And so the tools are very specific to this type of paper. So you can't, there are, paper flower makers in the world who've already created these tools, but they only work for paper, like, mm. like actual paper. Yeah, not paper. right. Gotcha. So like you said, I mean, with the new technologies of like 3D printing and stuff like that, mm. is it possible to get those tools, scan them for the pith paper, scan them? print them mm -hmm. and cast them. Um, yeah, actually, so my teacher actually has been making them by hand, uh, <laughs> each one by hand and then selling them to his students. Um, but we've been working on creating a version on CAD that we could maybe do some batch production with and that would make his life a lot easier right. and then also we'd be able to give out these tools to more people than mm -hmm. and if he makes them by hand one by one um but it's interesting because he uses uh there are these wooden massage tools that you can find at various street vendors in Taiwan. And he's been using those and then modifying them to work for flower making. It actually works really well. Um, so we're kind of modeling it after those <laughs> wooden massage tools, mm -hmm. but then adding uh, the actual, like creating it to be more functional for mm -hmm. the flower making. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, is it, I mean, again, you can't go to China necessarily find the artisans, but right now, does it feel like when he's gone, the craft is gone? No, I don't think so, because he's done a really great job at teaching people. So there are only a few pith paper flower makers, like master flower makers. Um, but my teacher has been teaching so many classes all around Taiwan. And then has taught people who have become good enough to become teachers. Uh, so they have been teaching a bunch of classes. So the pith paper flower making is starting to become more known around Taiwan. 
However, the pith paper making, the issue is, is the pith paper. There's, because there's only one pith paper maker, there's, she's, the pith paper maker, she is, they're very reliant on her for mm-hmm. the pith paper. And so once she is gone, <laughs> then there will be a lot of issues <laughs> amongst mm-hmm. the pith paper craft community. I think so that's why my teacher and I have been kind of working together to try to recreate these tools and trying to find knife makers who can help us recreate these tools he's already kind of given them a few tries mm-hmm. um, he's brought his designs to a knife maker try to remake the tool um, but so far these attempts have been unsuccessful because again it's not like an act like a regular knife they're mm-hmm. very specific measurements and weights that this knife needs to have in order to make it functional for pith paper making. Do you think that's something that you would be able to like scan and cast? I don't know. I don't, I'm not really familiar with the process of knife making, but Mm -hmm. I don't think this is something that I could just cast and scan and cast I think that I I need to send it to someone who specializes in knife making and can have a better sense of a better sense of how to make it functional for pith paper making Mm -hmm. when uh how long is your time uh there going to be now like how long is your research time so I'm supposed to be here until the end of December, so about nine months total. Um, but because of COVID right now, everything is on pause and I'm not even sure if I can do a lot of the field work I had planned mm-hmm. um, because a lot of the field work I was going to do, I was gonna go up into the mountains and look for the plant and learn more about the cultivation of this plant with indigenous farmers. Um, but now all of that's been canceled. <laughs> and so now I've just been at home translating uh, historical texts and reading and writing about the history. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've also been practicing making pith flowers uh, because I am trying to get I, I'm trying to get a lot better. <laughs> I'm trying yeah. to learn many different types of flowers and uh, and expand my techniques. Mm-hmm. Do you have hopes of being <clears throat> able to teach people in the U.S. how to do it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, actually, so I taught my first class through a workshop of our own mm-hmm. and that was really cool. It was a virtual workshop and I created 50 different kits uh, to make pith paper morning glories. And that was super fun. Um, Even though it was virtual, it was really fun to talk to people about the history of this craft and why it's important to me. And it was, it seemed like the students were really engaged and having a lot of fun making them. So (laughs) um, yeah. And I actually was supposed to teach a few workshops at RISD and in the Providence community uh, right at the start of the pandemic in 2020. 
but they were, I was driving from Michigan to Providence and by the time I got to Providence, my workshops had been canceled. So that was pretty sad. But, yeah. 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 Um, <clears throat> I'm paying attention to the time. So we're, we're kind of towards the end of our time together, but I want to give you a chance to let people know, um, you know, where can they find you? Where can they find your work? Um, so they can kind of keep track of this journey of paper making and, um, and woodworking. Um, so I have two Instagram accounts, uh, is irene.ling.way and ling is spelled l-i-n and then my other handle is pith.flower.shop so that's where you can find my work so i i founded pith flower shop which is an online uh, online shop that educates people about Taiwanese pith flower making and you can also order custom made flowers. Uh, because I'm in Taiwan right now, I'm not doing international shipping, so I won't be doing any commissions until mm -hmm. the end of December. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Underst understandable. Um, okay, and I will include the links uh, for both of those accounts so people can check that out and find you. Um, and I just want to thank you for taking the time, especially since it's really late where you are. So thank you so much. No, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate seeing your work online and really appreciate you giving me the opportunity to talk about my work. Yeah, absolutely. All right, so again, that was Irene Way back, uh, the first guest back with the podcast with brand new episodes and under the new name of Crafting Revolution. Great interview with her. I'll include the links on how you can follow along with her in the show notes. And so you can find those just in the description for the episode under whatever podcast app you use. Or if you're watching this on YouTube, just look for the description down below to find the links there. So you can follow along with her, follow along with her paper making and her woodworking and the combination of those two over there. Um, if you're enjoying this podcast, and especially if you're loving the new name and sound of the podcast, please head on over to Patreon um, and become a supporter over there, helping again to produce two episodes a week every week. Uh, the best way to find that is through the link in my bio over at Crafting a Revolution on Instagram. So that's just at Crafting a Revolution, all spelled out, all put together, pretty easy. Uh, there's also links in that bio to listen on Apple and Spotify and to watch on YouTube, trying to make it a hub for everybody to be able to go to. All right, so when I am not busy changing the name of my podcast and interviewing guests, awesome guests, uh, you can find me designing and making furniture art home decor over at freemanfurnishings.com or at freemanfurnishings pretty much across all the social media platforms like Instagram and TikTok and YouTube. I'm active on a daily basis though on Instagram and TikTok. That's where you can see what projects I am currently up to in the shop and uh, moving forward, at least for the next probably six weeks, you'll get to see the process of moving shop spaces 
and all that goes into it while also trying to work on a commission project. So it's going to be a hectic six weeks, but I am definitely pumped and looking forward to it. All right, so it is Friday. It is Friday of 4th of July weekend for those of you here in the States. I hope that everybody has a safe and happy 4th of July, and I will see you all next Wednesday with another brand new episode. Hey.